All right, well, good morning. And if you will, just take your Bibles and open them up to 2 Timothy in chapter 4. Uh, I want to go back and have a look at those few verses that we read this morning. Uh, and while you're doing that, um, let me just make introduction and get um, the trivia out the way. Uh, my name's Robin. Uh, Lynn is my wife. Uh, we are, well, I was Zambian, born, raised in Zimbabwe. Uh, Lynn was born in Zimbabwe, raised there. Uh, I think it's fair to say that we are probably fifth generation Africans. And so you're looking at two genuine Africans, irrespective of the color of the DNA in the, in the skin. Um, we want to express our appreciation uh, for you as God's people. Um, gathered together in somebody's home, worshipping the Lord. And for me, if you think back to New Testament times, uh, can you imagine the, the eunuch uh, when he was traveling home after Philip had left him? When he got back home, he never went to an established congregation. He started at grassroots levels. He never went somewhere where they had song books already printed. He never went somewhere where they had Bibles already printed. He never went somewhere where they had a church building. He, he, never, he never went to an organized structure like that. He had to begin from grassroots level. When we think about even the church in Rome, when you get home, go and read Romans chapter 16 and read about how Paul commends people that we don't hold up uh, normally as, as great giants and heroes of our Bible stories. But just go and read about those faithful brethren who were meeting in their homes and Paul considered them to be fellow workers in the kingdom. And if the Apostle Paul was here amongst you today and he looked at you and he said, well done for being a fellow worker in the kingdom, how would you feel? How motivated would you be? And yet the Apostle Paul says that to the church in Rome or the churches that perhaps are there. The Apostle Paul identifies Dorcas. He says she's a fellow laborer, a deaconess, not in the sense of a title, but in the sense of being a laborer, a lady worker uh, in the kingdom. Uh, it's vitally important that when you look at yourselves, don't consider yourselves to be uh, nobodies. Don't consider yourselves to be grasshoppers and, and insects. Uh, unless you consider it in a, a positive way, as the writer of Proverbs says, about uh, being an ant who doesn't need somebody to supervise you, you're just going about uh, your business. Consider yourselves to be God's holy nation. You're a peculiar people. Uh, you're a special people. You're a called-out people. You're a chosen people. You have been blood-bought by the blood that's going to be sacrificed uh, at the cross, which you will get into as you continue uh, in the book of John. And so I want to begin this morning in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want us to have a look at the uh, instruction and encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy. I want us to take it to heart. And perhaps in time to come, uh, you will consider, oh, we remember that uh, uh, foreigner, Robin uh, and Lynn, who, who came here. Uh, and... The way that you help us with, with the work that we're doing, it becomes an extension of, of what you're doing. And there's so much that we can do 
for one another. Just keeping one another in mind, keeping one, one another in, in prayer. Just consider this. This morning we have broken bread here, commemorating Jesus who is the Christ. Think about this. All across the world today, through the various time zones, before you gathered here this morning, there were God's righteous people gathering in other parts of the world, in other homes, doing exactly what you have done. And so throughout the 24 hours that we have as today the first of the week, people are remembering, bringing to mind, showing that they believe in Jesus who is the Christ. Take that to heart and you go back out to war against Satan and his angels, knowing that we have the armament that God has given to us. So let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and just read those verses and discuss them a little as we talk about our role in the kingdom, as I give you some feedback on the insights that we have from the work that we're trying to do. Uh, perhaps you will see that the hardships that we have are not so different from the hardships that you're having. Uh, the challenges that we're overcoming are not so, perhaps so different from the challenges. And perhaps there are some that are the same. Uh, perhaps they, they're different. We all have those challenges uh, before us. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearance and his kingdom. Here's the charge. Verse 2. Preach the word. What is your job in the kingdom? It's to preach the word. Now, you may say, but Brother Robin, I can't preach the word because I'm a lady. I can't stand up and teach in a mixed group of people. That may be true. But isn't this interesting? In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about wives who are married to pagan husbands. Now, he doesn't discuss whether they were married and then the wife converted to Christianity and the husband didn't, or whether the um, uh, wife was a Christian and married a pagan. He doesn't go into that kind of detail. The detail, though, that he does go into is this. You are married to a pagan husband. That's the fact. Be the kind of wife where the husband sees Christ in you without you having to say any word. That reminds me of Jesus talking in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You're the kind of person who knows how to turn the other cheek. You're the kind of person who knows how to go the extra mile. And so, can you preach the word? Absolutely, you can preach the word. You can preach the word in your workplace. What kind of an employee are we? Are we the kind of employee who only works when the boss is there? Or are we the kind of employee who is an honest, diligent, hardworking, trustworthy employee, whether the boss is there or whether the boss is not there? If you're in a supervisory position, what kind of a supervisor are you? Are you the kind of supervisor who relies on uh, the... Uh, disciplined code in the organization or you're the kind of supervisor that has 
leadership skills that cause people to, to want to follow you. The kind of leadership skills that Jesus had. If you are somebody who's serving, are you the kind of person? Let's take for example, if I asked you, which preachers, which people in the New Testament stand out to you, head and shoulders about, above all the others, who comes to mind? You're going to say Paul? You might say Peter? Perhaps you'll get down to Timothy and Barnabas. Who of us will mention Andrew's name? And yet who took Peter to the Lord? It was Andrew. We don't know what other work Andrew did in the kingdom. But what we do know is that he told Peter, we have found the Messiah. If that's all we're able to do in terms of preaching the word, is invite your friend, come meet with us. I have found the Messiah. You are preaching the word. Then notice this, Paul continues here and he says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. A good time and a bad time. Sometimes easy to preach the gospel and sometimes it's tough. But what is our job? Just to preach the word. He continues, he says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. It takes effort. I want you to think about this. Think about being a coach to a... A soccer team. I'm not talking about the professional people. I'm talking about to the tiny tots. Think about being a coach to those people, those little children. When you think about your national coaches, you never ever consider the high school coach or the young junior school coach or whoever it was who was first teaching those little ones how to kick the ball or throw the ball or hit the ball with the baseball bat, whatever it may be. But just consider this. Where would that coach, who's coaching the senior levels, the professional leagues, where would he be if he didn't have those grassroots people getting the job done at the tiny tots level? And so I want you to be encouraged by that. Sometimes when we come here from, from South Africa, we look at some of the congregations that are around here and we're just sort of blown away. <sighs> a congregation with multiple elders, a congregation with 20 deacons or 30 deacons, oh, that's like out of this world. In South Africa, I think that there's probably maybe two or three congregations that even have shepherds. The majority of them don't have shepherds. They don't know what it is to have deacons amongst themselves. But if everybody is about their business, if they're starting to teach their little ones, listen, we have to have people to take on the challenge of leadership in the church. Perhaps in 15 years' time or in 20 years' time, there will be those people who are doing that work. But where does it start? It's going to start with Lewis and Eunice teaching Timothy. It's going to start with perhaps Lydia and the church that's meeting in her house. It's going to start with the Ethiopian eunuch going all the way back to Ethiopia, beginning and slowly building up the kingdom the way that the Lord wants it to be. So I want you just to sort of hang on to that as we go through our discussion this morning. Our task is to preach the word. 
Our task is to convince, to exhort, sometimes to rebuke. We don't want to do that very often. And in our society, it's almost become a, a hiss and a byword to rebuke somebody. It's not politically correct mm. to use the right words to describe sin. So we want to try and find soft words. So instead of telling somebody they're wicked, we tell them, oh, that wasn't good. Well, why do we soften it? Let's just teach it as it is. If, if somebody's committing fornication, we don't want to say they're committing fornication. We don't want to say they're committing adultery. So what do we do? We say, oh, they're sleeping together. No. Let's use the right terminology to describe it so that we understand how wicked sin is. It was sin that took Christ to the cross. Sin is an evil and wicked thing. Let's not um, uh, treat it with, with soft gloves. Let's just deal with it as it is. All right, Paul goes on here and he says this. Time will come, in verse 3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to faithful. You be watchful in all things and endure the affliction. Let's just deal with that. Help each other. Help each other. It becomes really easy to have our ears turned away from the truth. It becomes really easy to be indoctrinated by the social media, by the television, by the radio, by all of these things that just come at us day by day. Let's just, let me give you an example. In Zimbabwe, which is a small country, the government is in chaos. Terrible. Cruel. Despotic. And yet, I have to say this about the tyranny of Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe at least had the courage the strength of character to say homosexuality is something for dogs. And in Zimbabwe, homosexuality is still something that is punishable through the law. Whatever else he's done, he's brought the country to its economic knees. I have to respect him for standing against the tide of popular opinion and saying it's wrong. Now, I'm not saying that because he said it. I'm saying that because the scripture says that. I don't know about here in the USA, but in South Africa, it's legal to have same-gender marriages. Well, that's an abomination to the God of heaven. So now here's the question that we have to put to ourselves. If the civil authorities come knocking on my door and say, Robin, we hear that you have taught against homosexuality, if you do not stop teaching against homosexuality, you're going to go to prison. What will I do? What happens when the brethren say, Robin, you shouldn't preach against these things, whatever it may be. Paul is warning Timothy, saying, Timothy, be careful. From amongst your brethren, they're going to turn away to fables. They're going to turn away to uh, uh, false teachings. They're going to turn away because they have 
ears that are itching for something which is not the truth. And so I'm pleading with you this morning, help one another to stay with the truth. Take your Bibles and read your Bibles to determine for yourself what is truth. So that your faith is not built on Joshua's faith or on Richard's faith or on Chuck's faith or on Robin's faith. Your faith is built on reading the Word of God. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which was a church that had lots of trouble. Paul said, we walk by faith. Where does your faith come from? Romans chapter 10 Verse 17, Paul says, Your faith comes from hearing the word of God. That's what is truth. That's what we have to help each other to uh, stay within the boundaries of. I want to um, just leave that with you for a little bit. And I would like you to to turn, first of all, let's go to um, the book of Corinthians. And uh, I want to go to chapter 9 uh, of 2 Corinthians, chapter 9. I beg your pardon, chapter 6 is really where I want to go. 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. I want to just have a look at a few verses here. Um, Along the same lines as what we're talking, verse 11 down to verse 16 or or 17, um, and just talk about it. And I want to try and relate this back to some of the work that we're trying to do um, in southern Africa, and then try and make an application here in, in Atlanta. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk amongst them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Now, let's take for a moment and say, okay, the Apostle Paul is not writing to the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul is writing to us. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says, we've spoken openly to you? In the first letter when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he opens opens it up and he immediately says to them, what is the problem that you have amongst you? That some of you think you're better than others. Some of you think you're more righteous than others. Based on what? Based on who baptized you? He says, what a load of rubbish. Stop that nonsense. You are all baptized into Christ. He continues, he points out some of the errors, uh, some of the sin that they were embracing. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What is the problem that you accept this fornication amongst you? You fellowshipping with this man who's in an adulterous situation with his stepmother. How can that be amongst God's righteous people? One brother taking another brother to court. Why? Because this brother owes you ten bucks. So what do you do? You take him to court to somebody who's an 
and the believer. What nonsense. What kind of a people are we if we can't resolve an issue amongst ourselves? Why do we need to go to an unbeliever? And so Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about these issues that they're fighting because you want to eat pork and I don't want to eat pork. Now we're fighting amongst ourselves. What utter nonsense, Paul says to them. And so here Paul says, 2 Corinthians, he says, I've spoken openly to you. I put my cards on the table. And what does he ask? He says, you do exactly the same thing. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. I suppose if you're in a congregation where there's second or third generation Christians, and you understand what I mean uh, by that, because the Bible doesn't talk about second or third generation Christians, but we use that expression like we use the expression, um, he's a full-time preacher. We're all supposed to be full-time preachers. Okay, just some of us are fortunate enough to get paid for it, and some of us do it just as a labor of uh, love. But what do I mean when I say a second generation a Christian? If, if you are a Christian uh, and you grew up in a Christian home, your parents were members of the Lord's Church, and you learned from childhood that which was true, and you've obeyed the gospel, that's what I'm referring to as a second generation Christian. And then, of course, if your children obey the gospel, we would refer to that as a third generation Christian. But everybody, actually, technically speaking, is a first generation Christian because everybody has to obey the gospel based on their own faith. But you can understand, if you've got two, three, four, five generations of people who've all obeyed the gospel, you've got a base to build on. You've got homes that have been established on godly principles. You've got people that are used to, it's normal for them to grow up with a mom and a dad in the same house. Back home, probably 60 to 70% of children are growing up without a biological parent in their home. Maybe we've got a mom, but not the real dad. We might have a stepdad or just the mom's boyfriend. Now, put yourself in that kind of an environment and now you're trying to teach those people to be godly people. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, let's just put the cards on the table. What are some of the problems that we have? I'm going to give you some examples of, of issues that we would face. Ancestor worship in Southern Africa is huge. It's a major problem. What is ancestor worship? Ancestor worship is the idea that your granny or your great-granny or your great-great-granny who may be dead and buried are still affecting your life. They're still controlling what happens in your life. And if you do something that's going to upset them, they're going to bring something bad into your life. So all of a sudden, this may happen. You may have a car accident. Why did you have a car accident? And somebody comes along and says, because you remember last week, this is what you did. Yes, well, that upset your grandfather. Your grandfather was dead and buried long ago. Okay. Now we have to come along and we have to teach those people, whoa, once somebody has died, once somebody's spirit has gone to the Hadean world, they have no influence over you. The spirit that has influenced you is God's spirit that has influence over you. The spirit that has influence over you is the spirit of Christ because you have been baptized into Christ. It's not Christ who, not you, 
It's Christ who lives in you, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's the Holy Spirit that's influencing you as you're reading the Scriptures. That's the Spirit that's influencing you. But can you imagine now, you're going to go and talk to somebody, their child is sick. These are people that you consider to be faithful brethren. So Robin, this baby is sick. Because last week, I told somebody about the gospel. And they asked me about my grandmother. And I said my grandmother never obeyed the gospel. Now my grandmother's angry with me. And so my child is sick. There's a typical kind of a, a situation that we might have to deal with. Might have to deal with this kind of a situation. In South Africa we have an ethnic group called the Tosa people. They circumcise their boys as a sign of changing from being a boy to a man. But they don't circumcise their babies when they're babies. They circumcise these young men when they are 15, 16, 17 years old. And it's a, 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 a rite of passage from being a boy to being a man. And the ritual is this. They take them away into the, the bushes, we call it. They have to live in booths. Sort of reminds me of a situation in the Old Testament where the Hebrew people once a week, uh, once a year, for seven days, went and lived in booths. And I tell the closer brethren, I said, you stole it from the Scriptures. You didn't think of this. You stole it from the Scriptures. But they take these young men away. They live in isolation. They become as dead people. And just think about the parallels here. They become as dead people. They even have to plaster their faces with white mud. And they walk around like, do you use the word spooks here? And they, they walk around as if they, they're spooks. They have no name. They are sort of meandering in never-never land. Then comes the ritual of the circumcision. Now, apart from the hygiene issues and the AIDS issues and uh, emphysema and all of that, and we often have deaths with it. I'm not considering that at this point in time. That's a humanitarian situation. I'm looking at it from a spiritual perspective. The circumcision of the flesh is neither here nor there. That's not an issue. But when ancestral worship is brought into the circumcision, you see, we are now doing this. We are now offering a goat as a sacrifice to the ancestors. We are pleasing the ancestors. So what you're saying now is your forefathers who have all died beforehand, we are now introducing you to your forefathers. We are now giving you a new name, and this is the name that will be recognized by your forefathers. What do we do with a young man who has committed himself to Christ and said, I give my allegiance to Christ and not the forefathers, when everybody in his town, everybody in his village, everybody in his school is going through that ritual, do you understand the peer pressure that he might be under? It's a huge, huge issue uh, for us. And so we talk about some of these things, and I think about what Paul spoke here, how Paul spoke to the church at Corinth. And I'm pretty sure that you've got those same kind of issues, perhaps just got a different shirt on or wearing different clothes. You've got those kind of issues, peer pressure at school, peer pressure at work, this transition from, from youth into into adulthood. That's some of the situations 
that we might face. Um, we don't have circumcision of girls, but further in North Africa, they do still circumcise girls. And they circumcise girls for all sorts of, of wicked situations, which I don't particularly want to go into uh, here. But I just want you to understand that when Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth, saying we've been open to you, be open to us, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, how real it was to them. Let's apply that to ourselves. Are we sometimes yoked to unbelievers? We sometimes get caught up. I asked the congregation we were at the other night, um, and I'm going to ask you the same thing. And I suppose Richard's just going to smile at me. You're just going to smile at me because you're uh, high-tech people. But, Chuck, let me ask you this question. In your, in, in your pocket, you have your cell phone. In your hand, you have your Bible. You take them both out and you put them down on the table and you leave and you go home. When you realize you've left something behind, what do we realize first? The Bible or the cell phone? Which one comes to mind first? And if we've left our Bibles behind, do we get into a panic station and phone Josh and say, Josh, I've left my Bible there. I'm coming back for it. In comparison, I left my cell phone there. Is it there? Can you pick it up and look after it for me? Now, it's not about the Bible or it's about the, about the cell phone. It's about our priorities. You see, what is more important to us at that point in time? Which will we miss more? As God's people, what should we be missing more? Surely we should be missing the truth that we have, the scriptures that we have. That should be more important to us. If I've left my cell phone, Josh, look after my cell phone for a week. I'll pick it up next week. But my Bible... I need my Bible because I need to feast on God's Word. We get that the wrong way around, don't we? And I just want to make an application with that about not being yoked with the Word. And I'm pretty sure that you can think of uh, some other examples uh, to go with that. Look at this in verse 15. Paul makes this statement. What accord has Christ with Belial? <coughs> Belial? Pagan? Idol? As Christian people, do we have an allegiance with idolatry? I'm going to make a, another example for you. We have a huge issue back in South Africa. The issue of immodesty. What happens? Is we learning as a society from the television which is created in Hollywood about the right way for people to dress and not to dress. A black brother laughed at me one day. It was not a cynical laugh. It was humorous. He laughed at me one day. He said, Robin, he said, you white people, and we talk white and black in South Africa like that, and it's not a racial slur. It's just a mark of identification. This is what he said to me. He said, Robin, you white people came to Africa, and you taught our ladies to dress. I said, yes, and I'll tell you why he said that. He said, and now the white ladies are undressing. <laughs> now, when the first settlers went into, into Southern Africa, it was true. Even today, it's true in many parts of Southern Africa. For ladies to be, from the waist up, to be without clothes. That's not an unusual thing. The only time they start to cover their breasts is perhaps when they get married. And if a young lady wants to cover her breasts... 
Her mother may even say to her, what do you know? What have you done? Why are you covering your breasts? Do you understand? Now, what happened is we came along, I'm talking about white people, we came along, we said, hey, you're supposed to be dressed, you're supposed to be modest. Well, that's true. But look at what's happening in society now. We've gone completely the other way around. Tomorrow, walk down the street and see how the people in Atlanta dress. And I suppose you might have to wait for it to warm up a little bit. But then just ask yourself, does God consider this to be modest clothing? And then we stop. And I'm talking now from a South African perspective. I stop and I look amongst my own brethren. I look amongst my own sisters in Christ. Why is it that I have to go back and teach them, you're supposed to be God-fearing woman. Aren't you supposed to be dressed modestly? As you get to know me, you will, you will learn that I, I say it as I, I think it should be said. I don't want to stand in the pulpit and see a lady's breasts. I don't want to have to be standing in front of a lady and all the time she's doing this. Why is she doing that? What's the message that she's giving? The message that she's giving me is, I'm not dressed properly. My breasts are too exposed. Don't look. Well, then cover them up. How often do you see ladies doing this? They, they, they walk into the assembly, minced like this, they come into the assembly, they sit down, and then immediately start to do this. Why are they doing that? Because they know that they're not dressed modestly. Now, let's just make a parallel. The Apostle Paul here, he says, we are supposed to be in Christ, not of Belial. When I'm following the fashions of the world, of people who are ungodly people, those people are idolaters. They just worship money and the things that it brings. And money is not the problem. It's the love of the money that's the problem. When we start to follow what the world is doing, are we not sinning against this instruction that the Apostle Paul has given here? I believe that we're sinning against that. We're not supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be set apart and different. Look at how the Apostle Paul uh, continues here. Um, in verse 17, Come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now forget about the break in the chapter there. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the task that we have before us. Can you see how that ties up exactly with preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering? It's not an easy task to be a Christian in many ways. We have to be different from the world. We should be set apart. We should be somebody that is peculiar. I guess that um, if we can't tell the difference in the way that Robin speaks with the way that the people in the street speaks, there's a problem. We're learning from our television to profane God's name. We're learning to blaspheme. We're learning to take the Lord's name 
in almost every sentence, you will hear somebody being, oh my, oh my. That's a terrible situation. We have to be careful. Guard your ears. Guard your mouth. Why? Because without realizing what's happening, we're listening to that. And sooner or later, pah, it's going to pop out. And the only way that we're going to stop it popping out is to use God's word. James tells us in James chapter 3, no man could control his tongue. It's like this uncontrollable thing. But God has given us something to control it. It's our mouth. It's our lips. And it's the word that he has given uh, to us. All right, our time is running. So, so let's move on a little bit. Um, let me talk to you about a blessing that you have. Everybody here fundamentally is speaking English or some manner of, of English. All of you have had an education so that you can pick up your Bibles and you can read them. So actually you don't have an excuse if you don't have some knowledge of the Scriptures. You don't have an excuse if you don't have an understanding. The Apostle Paul spoke to the church at Ephesus and he said, I've written these words to you that whereby when you read, you may understand. But I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine this as we're sitting here. There's three of us that can read. Two of us have Bibles. And the rest of us can't read. Or if we can read, we can only read at a really fundamental level. How now do we go about teaching those people the gospel? Can you see the difficulty? The advantage that those people have is that they use their memories much more than we do. And so it becomes easier to teach them a verse and for them to remember that verse. Now, just bear with me a little bit here. I would be very distressed if I went around the room here and asked somebody to tell me the books of the Bible, especially the New Testament, if you couldn't do that. Is there anybody here who can't do that? Okay, you're going to learn to do that, hey? Okay, absolutely. I was sitting in a class with some Tosa people. They had never been taught about the Bible as an overview. What they had been taught is bits and pieces, bits and pieces. So one day we sat down. I said, we're going to talk about the Bible here from beginning to end. I want you to understand the Bible story. And so I started in the book of Genesis. Let's talk about the creation. God created the world. I spoke to them a little bit about uh, the patriarchs. Moses, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Spoke to them a little bit about the law. Spoke to them about the wanderings in the wilderness. About the period of the time of the judges. You know somebody like Shamgar. Do you know who Shamgar was? Okay, Shamgar was one of the judges. There's one verse in the Bible that talks about Shamgar. And he picks up this ox goad and he kills 600 of his, of his enemies. And here's the lesson that we learned from Shamgar. 
he began where he was. He took what he had, and he did what he could. Okay, that's all. There's a fundamental lesson there for us, isn't it? Let's begin here, right where we are, with what we've got. You have got something. Let's begin with what we've got. Let's do what we can, and let's be teaching God's Word. Well, we went through the judges. We spoke about the kings. We spoke about the divided kingdom. We spoke about the periods of the silence. We spoke about the Babylonian captivity. We spoke about Christ. We spoke about the coming of the church. We spoke about the establishment of the church. And then I taught them to sing the song of the New Testament books. Can you sing that? There's a little song that we sing. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Do you know it? Okay, you have a cell phone or you have a device. Get somebody here to sing that for you onto your device. And perhaps if I see you again, I'm going to look at you and say, Please, brother, sing that little song for me. And I don't care if I don't care if you're out of tune. I don't care. What I care about is this is you can say to me, Robin, I know that the books of the New Testament are there are four gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts, the beginning of the church. And then tell me the letters that Paul wrote to the Romans, to the church at Corinthians, to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And for those of you who know the books of the New Testament, it's running off in your mind, isn't it? I taught those closer people this song. It goes like this. Matteo, Marco, Luca, Giovanni, I senso Roma, quabase corinti. I won't sing you the whole song, but could you hear the books of the New Testament hidden? I suppose it was about three weeks after I had been there. I got a little message on my cell phone. See, I do have a cell phone. I got a little message. And listening very carefully, there had been a little girl that had been sitting there, and she was singing that song. And her dad recorded that song and sent it to me. And this is the words that he said to me. He just said, thank you for helping us. That's it. Thank you for helping us. Here we've gone from a situation where the grown men in that small group of Kosa-speaking people couldn't tell me the books of the Bible. In fact, the way that they do it is they say, we're going to go to the book of Corinthians and it's page 734. And everybody looks for the page number. And yet, after a little time, that little girl was able to stand up as an example to all of those older people because if she could learn, so can you. eh? We can do it. There are many stories that we could talk about. It's uh, sometimes very hard and discouraging to be an evangelist. And sometimes... It's very heart rendering and warming and lifting up. And it's a wonderful thing, Josh, to go into somebody's house. The first time that you go in, you may see all kinds of things that embody wickedness in the world. And after just plugging away, plugging away, step by step, step by step, you go back perhaps a year later, sometimes two years later, and you see changes in the home. The things that you saw hanging on the walls are gone. 
They're replaced by new things, by godly things, by things that don't bring shame or reproach on the church. You watch and you see children who were unruly, wild, mobsters, changing. There's a congregation in, you have read about it in my reports, in Isabellini. When we first started going there and teaching, the ladies never used to come to the class. They don't know what it is to have children's Bible classes. You go back to that congregation today, and there they are, worshipping God. The ladies involved in the Bible studies, asking questions, teaching one another, the children being taught, and it's a wonderful thing. How is it possible? One person teaching somebody else. Are you able to preach the word? That's my question to you. You're able to preach the word. Every single one of us can do that. Every single one of us can bring somebody to Christ. Imagine this. My name is Andrew. And the Lord says to me, Andrew, what did you do for me? Lord, I introduced Peter to you. And I sit down. Did I do something significant? Did I do something great in the kingdom? One day when we stand before the Lord, and the Lord says, What did you do for me? The Lord, I introduced this person to you. Would that make it worth it for him? Jesus said this, said one soul has more value than all the gold in the world, than all the diamonds in the world, than all the wealth that is in the world. One soul. One soul is worth the blood of Jesus Christ. Can we bring one soul to Christ? I believe we can. Will you have challenges? Yes, you will. Will you be discouraged? Sometimes. Is it possible that somebody here goes back to the world? It's possible. What can we do to make sure that doesn't happen? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul pleaded with the church there. He says, you just keep on abounding in the work of the Lord. And more and more, as you see that day approaching, just every day, step by step, you just make sure you keep faithful to the Lord. Every day, take a verse and read it. Every day, make sure that you pray. Every day, try singing to the God of heaven. If we do that, can we stay faithful? Yes, we can. If we don't do that, we're going to cause a problem. And so I look forward to continuing hearing encouraging reports about this congregation. I look forward to hearing, you know, do you remember Brother So-and-so? Yes. Oh, the growth in that brother is phenomenal. I look forward you're getting an email saying, do you remember brother so-and-so? Yes. He told us all the books of the New Testament. He had memorized them. I look forward to that. 
And even if I'm back home in South Africa, even if I'm in the middle of Zimbabwe and I get that message, you would have been a source of encouragement to me. So, beloved of the Lord, you just make sure that you keep on keeping on. Stay faithful. Stay true. Help one another. Work with one another. And what a day it will be when the Lord returns and the righteous us are raised up to be with the Lord. Thank you.